Would you take your Bible, please, or the Bible that's provided in the hymn book rack, and turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's important that you turn to that now because we are going to read the text together this morning. Uh, this text is so key to how we function as Christians that it would do us well to have it memorized, and I find that though I'm not good at memorizing things, if I read things over and over again, they tend to stick with me. So Romans chapter 12, again, if you're using a pew Bible, I think that's page 1123. Would you read with me Romans 12.1, and then let's bow our hearts for a brief word of prayer. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed truth to us. We're grateful that you tell us what it is you want us to do to bring you pleasure but that you enable us to do that. And Father, you explain to us how we can think so that we're motivated to do what you want in a way that lasts, a way that causes us to serve you with great joy. Father, it's my prayer that you would burn this text into my heart, that you would remind me of it regularly. And I pray, Father, that you would do the same for those who are in my hearing. Father, we would also pray, those of us who are present, who know Jesus as Lord, that you would work in the hearts of those who have come in seeking Jesus, those who maybe are coming out of duty but don't really know him. We pray, Father, that you would work in them and that you would re reveal the Christ of the manger, but also the Christ of empty tomb the Christ who is at your right hand with all power and authority, the Christ who is building his church. We pray, Father, that your spirit would reveal him and that changes would take place, that you would create faith, that people who don't know Christ would know him. Be with believer and unbeliever as well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. My father's father had an automobile repair business deep in the heart of South Philadelphia. When my father was a young boy, he was expected, along with his brothers, to work in the family business, kind of common if you have a business in the family. He not only worked in that business, but he inherited the mechanic gene, I guess, from my grandfather. He was incredibly good at fixing things. My father's day job was that as a manager for a large railroad in the U.S., a railroad that had its headquarters in Center City, Philadelphia. That was his day job. But on Saturdays, he would work on our cars and work on the cars of friends and, and neighbors, uh, relatives. He didn't take money for that. He did it because it was his hobby. It was what he liked to do. Now, I have always been quite curious, and I have been told that at ages three and four, uh, I was always asking, you know, thousands of questions about how things were constructed, 
about how they worked. And so when my father was working at his hobby on Saturdays, I was usually looking over his shoulder, watching and asking questions about brakes and spark plugs and spark plug wires and fuel pumps and voltage regulators and all the rest. When I was a little bit older, five or six, he would give me parts that he had taken off of cars, defective parts, and I would take those apart and examine uh, what was inside. I wanted to see what made those particular parts work. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul, writing for God, and let's never forget that Scripture is God's Word to us using instruments, human instruments, to record what God wants us to know. Paul, writing for God, lets us look over God's shoulder and see what motivates Christians to function the way they do when they're functioning in the way that God intends for them to function. When they never miss weekly public worship services unless they are providentially hindered. And you don't hear that phrase much anymore, I don't, providentially hindered, but obviously it means that God intervenes and keeps us from doing something. So God's providence, providence, providences that would keep somebody from weekly worship are things like a flood in the basement that has to be dealt with immediately, uh, some illness of a child or personal illness, maybe a blizzard work that's required by an employer, something that is not a discretionary move on our part that keeps us from worshiping the Lord, but something God brings in to our lives. Christians are commanded to worship on the first day of the week with God's people. Paul lets us see what motivates Christians to tend the nursery and serve in junior church every X number of weeks for years on end. He shows us what allows people to teach Sunday school and to be youth workers and deaconesses and deacons and elders, to be missionaries and pastors and do that with joy throughout the time they are ministering for God. He shows us what causes Christians to visit Alzheimer patients who may not know moments after the visitor leaves that they have even been visited, to sacrifice their time and energy to clean for those who not, cannot clean house for themselves, to take meals to those who are unable to prepare them, to take infirmed people for treatment, to teach immigrants English, to give 10% and more of their income to the Lord, to tell the truth and act with integrity when it seems detrimental to the Christian's best interest, to tell the truth and act ethically, what causes them to say no to sexual temptation when the offer looks incredibly pleasing and desirable, to dress modestly when that's not the fashion. In Romans 12:1, Paul did, does for us what my dad did for me. He lets us look under the hood. He takes off a wheel, and he shows us what it is that makes Christians to operate the way they do when they are operating the way God intends for them to operate. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ this morning, we are so glad you're here. Uh, this is a place where you can be exposed to him and get to know him, uh, to decide if he 
is who he says he is and if you want to follow him. And I think if you stay with me this morning, you will come out enlightened. You will understand what makes us tick. But if you are a believer, you came in as a believer, I think if you understand what Paul explains to us here, it will help make you more like Jesus. It will help keep you from being frustrated in your Christian service, as no doubt many are in life. And it might even keep you from giving up on the Christian life altogether. Now, I'd like us to begin by seeing what it is that doesn't motivate the Christian, Christian behavior. There are a lot of people who do things that Christians do. They attend church. They support the work and ministry of the church that they attend. They even give money to the church. They are faithful to their spouses. They use integrity in the marketplace. They love and nurture their children. There are people who are not committed Christians, who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, who will tell you they endeavor to live by the golden rule. They try to do unto others as they would have others do unto them. But their motivation, if it is a religious motivation, is what has always motivated people who do not understand the gospel to do good things. It's a motivation that is actually wired into each of us. It's a DNA theology that tells us that if we do good, the good that we do can outweigh the bad things that we know that we do in life and make us acceptable to God. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 teach that God's moral law is written into the soul of everyone who is born into the world. And because God's law is written into us, we instinctively know the righteous ethical standards that are inscribed in the Ten Commandments. Romans chapters 1 and 2 teach that each person knows the truth of God's existence, of God's sovereignty over his creation and over them, and that God will one day judge each person according to his law. Now, Romans chapters 1 and 2 also teach us that before people understand the true gospel of God, all of them pervert the truth they have about God, and they create a God that is suitable to their individual taste in a God. But Scripture teaches that even after they construct their own personal God, a remnant of God's truth remains in them. Now, a large part of this remnant of truth is a belief that by keeping God's law, a person can gain God's favor in this life and have life with God on the other side of their grave. What's amazing to us at times, if we are not really thinking about it, is that this belief is actually true. Galatians chapter 3, verse 12 teaches that we can have life with God by our efforts. It states, the man or woman who does these things, 
that is the things that are written in God's law, the things that God's law requires, will live by them, live eternally. Because it is true that living by God's law brings eternal life, people have always done things and ref done good things and refrained from doing evil things in an attempt to secure eternal life by their behavior. Now, our experience in Scripture both tell us that this is true. If you were to ask friends and neighbors, people that are seated by you on a park bench, if they were to stand before God today and he were to ask them, on what basis can I let you into my heaven? I can guarantee to you that if they don't know the gospel, the vast majority of those people will begin to recite for you a lot of the good things that they think they do in life. This is just wired in. But the insurmountable problem is that in order to have life with God in this way, fellowship with Him here and now and for eternity, means that a person must only always do what God's law commands, and they can never once do anything that it forbids. The same section of Galatians that I just quoted for you in Galatians chapter 3, a different verse, verse 10, says this, all who rely on observing the laws are under a curse. Why is that? For it is written, the Scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not do everything, everything written in the book of the law. One act of failure to obey any of God's law makes a person a lawbreaker unable to pay for his or her crime. It's like when you put a permanent magic marker, I've done this a couple times, in the pocket of a blouse or a shirt and the cap's not on, try to get that stain out. All of those things that you read about on the internet, you know, hairspray, all of that, never takes it out completely. One sin makes a person a sinner, unable to pay for his or her crime. But before we believe the gospel, we go on trying to pay for our sin by doing good works. We reason that a God who is merciful will not also be absolutely just in applying the penalty that every sin deserves. The truth of the gospel is that God is infinitely just in His judgment, even though He is infinitely mercy. It also teaches that the only person who ever gained heaven by good works was God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He never once violated any of God's commandments. He always did what God's law required perfectly. He earned heaven by His good works, and we can only get there through those works that Jesus did. And when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, God credits the perfect obedience of His blessed Son to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him.
Christians do not consistently and sacrificially serve Christ and His church in order to gain eternal life. Nor do Christians serve Christ and His church to get good things from God in this life, like good health and long life and great kids, wonderful relationships, all the material things that we want. When Christians are seen sacrificing their time and their talent and their wealth and their comfort for Christ and His church, they are not playing let's make a deal with God. If they have matured even a little bit in their faith, Christians are not thinking, I'll do these things for God so that He will owe me and He will uh, compensate me. Those who attempt to make that kind of bargain with God find it to be the pathway to confusion, to disappointment, to frustration, and to anger. It can even lead to a rejection of the Christian life. If one's motivation for holy living and service is a belief that God keeps the presence coming to the door of those who work hard at being good, you can guess what is likely to happen when they lose their jobs, when they have an accident, when they have rebellious children, or when they're diagnosed with a serious cancer. They will either continue to go through the motions of serving Christ, but do them without joy and probably do the minimum, or they will try harder and become even more frustrated, or some of them just quit trying to please God altogether. The reason I tried being good and it got me nowhere, I may as well live as I please. Are you in one of those categories today? Wrong motivation can drive you there. If you're seeking to earn God's favor or to get good things from Him in your service for Christ, in your devotion to Him, you're headed for disaster. Well, what is the motivation for Christian's behavior? If the Christian's lifestyle is not explained by an attempt to earn heaven or to get good things from God, what explains it? Well, some might reason that Christians live like they do, motivated by a desire to alleviate human suffering uh, and misery, to make life better here. Well, Christians do care about suffering, human suffering and human misery, and they do respond to them. The history of the Christian church has been that it has been a benevolent people of God, people who have helped those in need. But while, but while these ever-present problems motivate secular humanists to work to make this world a better place because they believe this world is all there is, a Christian's motivation for helping those in need is found elsewhere. The Christian's lifestyle, our text tells us, is motivated by God's mercy. Look again at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to live according to this principle that I am going to give you. Paul uses the word therefore to get us to think about God's mercy. The mercy of God is what Paul has been explaining from chapter 1 of Romans all the way through the end 
of chapter 11. When Paul writes, therefore I urge you in 12.1, the apostle is saying, everything I have written to this point has to do with the mercy of Almighty God. It is the mercy of God that provides the motivation for Christians to live their lives according to the principle that Paul is going to command Christians to live by. Now, what is mercy? Theologians define mercy this way. Mercy is an aspect of God's grace. That's God's unmerited favor to his undeserving creatures. Theologians also say that mercy's unique quality under the umbrella of God's grace, mercy's unique quality is that it is God's ready inclination to relieve the misery of pitiful creatures. I want you to view in the next few moments with me the mercy of God as Paul explains it in Romans chapters 1 through 11. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul says God created humans in the image of God, that he revealed himself to them. But the epistle tells us that when men and women knew God, they glorified him not. They worshiped and served the created rather than the creator. These first two chapters of Romans tell us that all born into the human race are sinners at birth. They can only sin and they delight in their sin. Each person coming into the world piles up a great mountain of sin by which he or she will be judged at final judgment if they have not received Jesus as Savior and Lord. They also tell us that there is nothing any sinner can do for himself or herself to remove the guilt and avoid the penalty that runs with the guilt and the sin. But look at this. In the midst of the terror created by this letter, as it tells us our, our condition, the human condition, the light shines. And Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through Jesus Christ to all who believe. We were without hope. We were separated from fellowship with God. We were facing death and hell. But God in His grace showed to us His infinite mercy, His ready inclination to remove the misery of pitiful creatures. And He showed His mercy in this way. God offered up his only begotten Son, to death and hell, to atone for the sins of all who follow his Son as Savior and Lord. Those who receive Jesus are freed forever from the guilt and the penalty that their sin deserves. But this is not the full extent of God's mercy. When a person repents and believes, he or she is joined to the risen Christ and given a new start, a new life. Chapters 5 through 7 teach that. She or he is given the power and the desire also to break free from habitual sinning and to be obedient to God and God's law. Chapter 8 informs us 
that when a person accepts Jesus as Savior, they are given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. That person comes to live in a believer's soul. The divine person living in their soul assures them that they are daughters and sons of God, and that nothing can ever destroy the relationship that has been created by grace through faith. In chapters 8 through 11, St. Paul explains that all of the steps in the miracle that take us from being con condemned sinners under God's wrath facing judgment to faith and freedom and new creation are gifts from God to us. These chapters tell us that God chose us to be the recipients of His favor when we were not interested in His favor, that He saw that the message of the gospel that would change us would come to us and save us, and that He even gave us the faith to believe. From Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, Paul displays the infinite riches of the mercy of God. And then our text, in 12.1, he writes, Therefore, because of all of that, I urge you in view of God's mercy to do the following. God revealing his truth through the Apostle Paul tells us that it is mercy that is the motivation for what he is going to declare to be the principle of Christian living. Let's look at that principle as we close. In Greek and Roman worlds, animal sacrifices were everywhere. Uh, if you go and visit Rome or Greece, you'll see that the towns and villages are ringed with the ruins of temples all around. The pagans knew about the sacrifices that were offered continually on the altars in those temples that were built to pagan gods. The Jews knew that in Jerusalem, sacrificial animals were being slain all of the time. It was part of their religious worship, the worship of God's covenant people. So Jews and Gentiles reading 12.1 would have vivid and detailed pictures in their mind of what Paul commands here when he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The word offer denotes, it's a more technical term that denotes the laying down of a sacrificial animal on an altar in a, in a temple. But it also came to mean putting yourself at the disposal or service of someone else, sacrificing yourself for someone else. Look at the image. Paul is telling us to climb up on a metaphorical altar to the Lord and sacrifice ourselves to God in every possible way. The Apostle Paul is commanding us to, to, to die to our desires and to live for Christ. The word living here is interesting to me. It describes our sacrifice. It carries the idea with it that we are to continually be offering ourselves to God. So if you come to the Lord Jesus today and receive Him as Savior and Lord, that is an act of sacrifice. But those of us who know Jesus 
are to be continually sacrificing ourselves to Jesus. Christ said, take up your cross daily and follow me. The word body in the verse stands for the whole person, body and soul. Death in this realm is unnatural. It separates body and soul. We were created to be integrated, and Jesus came to save both our souls and our bodies. Romans 8.23, Philippians 3.21 tells us that we are going to be raised from the dead and receive bodies like Jesus' body. We are to bring glory to God in our bodies and souls because when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the penalty to buy us body and soul. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We are bought with the incredible, unbelievable price of the death and the suffering of hell of the Lord Jesus. 12.1, our eyes and ears and hands and feet and tongue and thought life, our brains, every part of us are to be given, is to be given over completely to God's purposes as those purposes are explained to us in Scripture. People who do not understand biblical Christianity, they think that you're attempting uh, to do good things so that you can earn eternal life. The real truth is that we know God has freely and graciously and mercifully given us eternal life. And out of deepest gratitude for his great mercy to us in this unfathomable gift, we respond by continually offering up to him our bodies and souls. We sacrifice our lives to King Jesus is the only fitting response to his giving of his body and soul as a sacrifice for us. The life we offer up to Christ is not the life which we came into the world with. It is the new life that God gives us when we accept his son. Romans chapter 6 describes this new life as one lived in union with Christ, united with his resurrected do you have that life? Do you have new life in Christ? Do you know for sure today at the end of this year, the beginning of a new one, that if you were to step out of this life into the next, that you would be with the Lord? If you're not sure, acknowledge in your heart before God your sin, your inability to do anything to eradicate the sins that you've committed. Believe that at the cross Jesus experienced your hell for you, the penalty you should have endured. Ask him to come into your life and tell him that you desire to live your new life following his commands and example, not in your own strength, but as he makes you able to do that, as he gives you strength. Now, a lot of you, probably most of you, have received Christ long before coming here today. Let me ask you this question. Are you fulfilling the role that God has cast you in of being priest and sacrifice? Are you filling that role? Are you continually offering up to God all that you are, all that you are? Does he have all of your time, all of your talent, all of your wealth, all of your devotion 
to use as he sees fit? Or are there parts of you that make you you which have not been given up to Christ or have not been, are not being now at this point in your life? What is it you're holding on to? Where is the lack of complete obedience in your life? As you examine your heart under the searchlight of the Holy Spirit of God, the light that he provides, tell Christ that it's your desire to give those things up that he doesn't have now, to put them on the altar, to give them to him in the light of what Christ has done for you, in light of his mercy toward you, can you do anything else? Let's pray. Father, your Holy Spirit works to convince us of sin. We're so good at making excuses for our sin, for living life the way we want to live it instead of the way you want us to live it. Father, we can't even examine ourselves well without your help. Father, shine your light into every crevice of our lives. Father, help us now as we pray to think about areas in which we are holding back, where we are being disobedient. And, oh, Father, give us the courage, give us the strength to say by faith that you will help us, that we're going to give those things up, that we want to be yours completely. We want to be a continual sacrifice to you. We want you to have all of us in light of the fact that your son gave all for our salvation. Father, work in our hearts in the quietness of these moments. Help us to think about these things throughout this day and in the days ahead. And Father, for those who have come in who don't know Jesus, this might sound scary, but Father, the people that have accepted you as Savior, who have sacrificed their wills for yours, look back over their lives and are grateful that you created faith in them to believe, grateful for the places where they yielded to you. Father, move in the hearts of people present. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to the salvation that he offers. There's no other salvation, Father. Work grace in the hearts of your people here. We pray in Jesus' name.